Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Wordplay. The date is July 2023, and my name is Bell Avis. All I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and then I can turn the world upside down. Friedrich Nietzsche. Words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him and now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? Alan J. Lerner from the musical My Fair Lady. Okay, a guy who spends most of his time with words, whether reading them or writing them, should not be sick of words. For the better part of three decades as a business person, I played with words in a very different context. In that regard, my goal was to use messages and comments, visuals, and even music to compel a select group of people to favor my product over, well, something else. For this, I used a simple three-part framework. First, what is it? What are we talking about? Second, why should the target care about the first thing? And third, how is that thing different from something else? What is it? Why should someone care, and how is it different? How could it be an alternative? This works fairly well with politics and history, but sometimes the reality is a little differentiated. Politicians and their ilk understand principles two and three in their bones. Now, to take one prominent example, the recent debt cancellation decision. Select group of Democrats care because they want their debts canceled. And another group of Americans cared because they either paid off all of their debts or incurred none and did not want to pay that of others, which they, of course, had no choice in taking out in the first place. The understanding of why they care leads to the third piece, an alternative. Progressives wish to cancel student debt, and the GOP, and most Americans, do not. But this gets trickier when candidates encompass the same policies. Then other factors, such as character or ability to fight, as the modern GOP voter might say, come to the fore. This podcast was primarily about that first piece. What is it? Because it is here in which clarity is often not an asset to the politician or the pundit or the media or whomever is talking about it. The definition of it, that first part, is the subject to interpretation. And therefore, that is is where we get to the word issue and word play. One example is the heated debate over abortion. Pro-choice proponents can use that term all they like, but at its core, it is still pro-abortion. Pro-lifers can use that term all they want, and I would attend to agree more with the accuracy of the moniker over pro-choice but it is still about denying the liberty of the mother to make a decision that does affect her body. But the pro-life and pro-choice monikers put a little bit of different spin on the what it is. I'm not, definitely not sick of words, but their alteration for specific ideological narrative is both disingenuous and harmful. Number one, forgiveness versus cancellation. Be careful with your words. Once they are said, they can only be forgiven and not forgotten. 
That quote was from an unknown provider and sounds a little bit, I don't know, fortune cookie-ish, but I still think it hits the mark. In addition to the words cancellation and forgiveness, as around debt that we had mentioned a little bit earlier, there is also the more squishy term, relief. At least, even forgiveness keeps the focus on the debt and not the feelings of those who receive this, what I would term, unconstitutional largesse. So much relief. Why do I bring up the C word? No, not the other C words, the Constitution in this case. So why do I bring up the Constitution? Because as we shall see later, nothing is free. Someone has to pay. So for those like myself who paid off their loans, or to those who never went to college, this is what is called a tax. And it is a tax just as if Congress or state government had raised the income or the payroll tax. That is is what happens when Congress imposes fees upon the citizenry. But in the case of Congress, that is what they were elected to do so, the power of the purse. I call this unconstitutional because essentially Biden was imposing a tax on the rest of us. In this case, we as the American voters had even less to say about this than as was usual. I prefer the historical term cancel, debt cancellation. This is defined as a factor or circumstances that neutralizes or negates the force or effect of another. Brutal, clear, and focused on what is being canceled. Contrast that with the word forgive, as defined as stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, a flaw, or a mistake. In this case, the loan is bad. Therefore, Biden, our benevolent ruler, can forgive the outrageousness of that debt. He is forgiving the debt. What Biden is forgiving is the stupidity of someone taking out a loan without the wherewithal or intention to ever pay it back. When a deity forgives us our sins or trespasses, I do not recall that sin being then projected onto somebody else. I could warm to that concept. I steal a necklace, but I am forgiven. But Tommy down the street, well, he has to go to jail. Sorry about that, old chap. I needed the necklace, you see. I'm forgiven. You are not. The Roosevelt Institution, no right-wing think tank they, I mean, think about who has that name on their institution, called the dead imbroglio canceling. Though they wrongly missed the regressive nature of it in a piece called Student Debt Cancellation is Progressive, Correcting Empirical and Conceptual Errors. Again, wrong about the progressive part. It's a regressive tax in my view, but still, that's a, that's, that's a terminology we'll look at for another time. Now, the concept of the cancellation of debt is not new, of course. A piece found on the excellent Foundation for Economic Freedom site, written by Lawrence W. Reed and Mark Hyden states, More than 2,000 years before America's bailouts and entitlement programs, the ancient Romans experimented with similar schemes. The Roman government rescued failing institutions, canceled personal debts, and spent huge sums on welfare programs. The result wasn't pretty. Roman politicians picked winners and losers, does that sound familiar, generally favoring the political well-connected, very familiar now, a practice that's central to the welfare state of modern times as well. 
As numerous writers have noted, these expensive Rob Peter to pay Paul efforts were major factors in bankrupting Roman society. They inevitably led to even more destructive interventions. Rome wasn't built in a day, as the old saying goes, and it took a while to tear it down as well. Eventually, the emperors attempted to control the entire economy when the republic faded into an imperial autocracy. Even the International Monetary Fund, a global banker to the world, talks of cancellation. This note considers the implications of proposals to cancel 100% of the multilateral debt. And finally, the IRS, the IRS of all things, talks of canceling the debt. So please forgive my use of words here, but can we cancel all use of the term forgive for unilaterally canceling debt? It would be a great relief to use a term with greater clarity. Food insecurity. So I got my latest issue of Ancient History magazine published out of, are you, out of all cities, Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Yes, folks, I am serious about history, and this is one of four magazines I get from an outfit called Zutphen. And right there on their cover was their feature article entitled Food Insecurity in the Ancient World. When I go onto the New York Times website or I'm reading Washington Post's op-ed section or even watching CNN or talk to my progressive friends, I have come to expect the term of food insecurity. Therefore, it was a little jarring to see to see that term in what is usually a politically free safe space of a magazine that looks at ancient cultures primarily through an archaeological and not an ideological prism. Not here, though. Yet the articles, as is usually the case with this magazine, are fascinating, well-written, and comprehensively researched. There is a piece on the famine that accompanied the collapse of the Near Eastern Bronze Age states that occurred around 1200 BCE. And there was another good read on Roman mobs. We talked about those, well, at least about Roman society a little bit ago. But there was another good read on Roman mobs getting a little itchy when Egyptian grain was in short supply in the late Republic and early Imperial periods. But this is not insecurity as defined by today's left. The reality for most humans prior to the 18th century was no food security at all. A full belly was a luxury and consistent satiation or the anticipation of that state maybe six months from now, well, that was the stuff of dreams. So why does the left not simply say the hungry or talk about hunger in America? Because in modern America, we have essentially banished hunger. And keep in mind, hunger was one of the three great scourges of humankind with disease and war being the other two. In history, we can look at great famines such as visits to the Assyrian Empire in the 7th century BC all the way to the Bengal famine of the 18th century CE. Yet these are just the mass hunger issues. These are famines in which millions of people died or in the case of the Assyrian Empire, a once powerful state was toppled. From 14,000 years ago to the advent of the modern era in capitalism, over 90% of the population were farmers. And it is not a stretch to imagine that farm family looking out the window of their three-room house with growing concern that another week or two of too much rain and the crops will die. Or no rain at all 
and the crops will die. Or maybe the local lord was feeling some late night cravings and decided to take a greater share of his crop from you than he might have done hitherto. Only the guy with the swords and a group of toughs to back him up enjoyed food security. His security was the peasant's insecurity. Food insecurity today is a little different. It's defined today as living in households that lack the means to get enough nutritious food on a regular basis. One of the key words here is is a family is concerned about food, not hungry, not starving, but concerned. Then they would go into that list of food insecurity. And who are the creators of these terms up to and including food insecurity? Well, sure, you have your activists and charities, but the actual owner is the Department of Agriculture. In a follow-the-money fashion, the primary movers and shakers of the Department of Agriculture are food companies and farmers. Not, And I'm not really talking about Farmer Ned looking like something from a Grant Wood painting. No, I'm talking about ConAgra, Purdue, and Tyson. This is what in business we used to call revenue generation. And here's how it works. Big food convinces the DOA that we have food insecurity, which provides a cause for the department bureaucrats. Liberal groups, always looking for victims, so they can play the heroes, comply, and spread the term. Thus, we need more food. And who provides that food? Well, you guessed it. Follow the money. And in fact, Americans have too much food, or at least the wrong kind, not likely to be fixed by Purdue. According to the CDC, the U.S. obesity prevalence was 41.9% in March 2020, an increase from 30% in 1999. Severe obesity increased from 5% to almost 10. That means 10% of our fellow citizens are morbidly obese and a candidate for weight reduction surgeries. And I will not catalog all of the health issues that our hefty citizenry will cause. We are a wealthy country. So what if many Americans look like characters from a Fernando Bataro or the plus-size Peter Paul Rubens works? The reality in our nation is, is that, in contrast to international trends, People in America who lived in most poverty-dense counties are those most prone to obesity. And to that, I can already hear my progressive friends telling me, but Bell, this is a nutrition issue. These, these people in these poor counties are getting the wrong calories. To which I say, I think you need another word. In other words, it is not food insecurity, but rather good food insecurity. Not quite a good ring to that which is why they use the far more inaccurate terminology. The word free. Definition of the word free, without cost or payment. As noted in the previous comments on debt cancellation, nothing is free. Someone has to pay. Or even as Lyndon Baines Johnson, a key giver of supposed free stuff through his great society, put it, nothing comes free. Nothing, not even good, especially not good. One need not be a noble laureate to understand this, though this concept seems to be lost in the case of Paul Krugman. As Daily Wire founder Ben Shapiro noted in 2017, and when the free things don't materialize, the people turn on you. Solution, stop lying. 
democratic politics is riven by a central conflict, the conflict between truth and desire. People generally want things. They want the government to give them those things. Conservatives aren't wrong when they say they can't compete with Santa Claus. It's far harder to draw voters to your side by telling them they won't get something than by telling them they'll get real estate on the moon. In my business days, I voluntarily taught eight and nine-year-olds commerce as part of the Junior Achievement Program, something I'd highly recommend for any listener looking for voluntary activities. It's actually pretty cool because the kids get it and it's fun. It's an introduction to commerce and business and yes, capitalism. Now, in this case, gamification was key. We would start a fake business, usually a pizza parlor. I taught third and fourth graders that they needed to buy ingredients to make the pizzas, but sell them for more than the cost. And I remember one kid telling me, my pizza is going to be the best, and I'm going to put all my ingredients on it. Well, I explained that the pizza would cost a lot. And he said, yes, but mine is going to be the best, so people will pay. This kid had not heard of Adam Smith, but he got it in a way that Krugman never will. I marveled at how a nine-year-old could grasp something that most of the world and all too many members of Congress do not seem to understand. Well, this is not entirely true. Sheldon Whitehouse or Elizabeth Warren understand at some level that nothing is free. They figure that if deficits get bad enough, future governments will impose draconian taxes and thus figure a way to pay. They failed to mention that the entire Forbes 400 has assets, assets not income, mind you, of about $4 trillion. A lot of money, I get that. The issue is, is that we run annualized deficits of over $1 trillion every year, and we have a debt of over $32 trillion. And we have just taken every penny of the wealthiest, and now, under that uh, envision of taking the Forbes 400 wealth to pay for all this free stuff? Well, now we need to move to the next rung, and so forth and so on. So if you think about it, if you confiscated the entire wealth of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Warren Buffett, yeah, well, you'd balance the budget then for the next four years. Uh, What to do in 2027? Who knows? Well, now we're going to have to tax the next rung, and again, and so forth and so on. Oh, and by the way, We've balanced the budget for the last four years. We have not paid off a single thing of the debt. And the debt accrues interest. Again, nothing is free. Now, even free speech, guaranteed by the First Amendment, comes with a price. Nothing is free. The price is, on occasion, to be offended, sometimes deeply. So when I read about Michigan's new law, I knew a violation when I saw one. As noted in the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, Michigan hometowns violation of its citizen First Amendment rights. The city code now prohibits people speaking during the public comment period of city commission meetings from demeaning city officials, officers, or employees, making derogatory comments directed at another person, or using vulgarities. And in a letter sent last week, Fire called on Bay City's government to eliminate these unconstitutional restrictions on its constituents' right to speak freely about matters involving the city and its leaders. The prohibitions on demeaning 
or derogatory comments violate the First Amendment by selectively targeting speech based on viewpoint. Whenever I see these restrictions, and on their paper, they seem pretty good. In other words, I can't call the mayor the F word, right? That, okay, sounds pretty good. The problem is, is the slippery slope. At what point am I questioning the mayor to the point where they feel offended by something that they did and therefore can hide behind this law? The payment of that free speech in the First Amendment, again, the payment is, is to be offended. Now, I am old enough to remember when the ACLU defended the right of Nazis to organize. I should not have to state that conservatism, based on individual rights and leader selection, is the true polar opposite of fascism and not a mirror, which is Marxism. I hesitate to cite the speech from A Man for All Seasons, in which Thomas More notes is that, that if you cut down the laws to get to the devil, the devil will win because he will turn on you and you have no laws to protect yourself. If a political group of the day gets to decide what is offensive and what is not, that will be the beginning of the erosion of those all too critical First Amendment rights. Free speech is not free, but it is absolutely vital for liberty. I have talked about words that I don't like, forgiveness in terms of debt cancellation, I've talked about free stuff. Here's where I want a word to be inserted. I want a word to be used much more often. And that is the word former. And I'm particularly talking about former in relation to politicians who are no longer in office. This is a straightforward test. If you want to know whether your media is truly news or provides independent opinions, when addressing former office holders, do they use the former in the piece, or treat the figure as if they still hold office. Here's an example. In a piece in the National Review referring to Donald Trump, Andrew McCarthy states, after all, the Capitol riot dust settled. Did former President Donald Trump commit a plain old financial fraud, i.e. pocket a pile of dough that he raised on false pretenses? Here's a piece from the dispatch Nick Cataggio. Bill Barr, who amassed populist cred as a loyal servant of the former president until, like Mike Pence, he squandered it by refusing to abet the rigged election nonsense. Even Town Hall does this. Unsurprisingly, former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were the most popular in the THM straw poll. Note the differentiation there. Donald Trump is not president, hence he is former president. But Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida, and thus he's referring to as that with that title, though I will talk a little bit about these titles in a moment. Yet here is Senator Edward Kennedy speaking of Trump. On Wednesday's broadcast of the Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends, Senator John Kennedy stated that he thinks the Justice Department will do whatever they can to make sure that President Trump is the nominee, because that's who President Biden wants. Kennedy went on to state, he thinks that President Trump is the only person he can beat. Former President Barack Obama often also receives the same treatment from those on the left, interestingly, in a way that former President Bill Clinton does not. And it is not just presidents. Fox News routinely interviews former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, and though they put the former into the title image, they always refer to him as Mr. Speaker. So is this just some nit? 
Are you thinking, valued listener, that I just got up on the wrong side of the bed today or maybe had a little too much wine last night and feeling a little headachy? Or I'm just trying to be a little bit of a crank or a troll? No, I don't see it that way. When the founders constituted our government, they deeply understood its impact on society, having just overthrown an aristocratic one. They consciously avoided titles. No barons, viscounts, dukes, or kings. But increasingly, we treat former office holders as if they were, well, a type of peerage. Our government features offices, not titles. As I always like to say, it is an office, it is not a title. The presidency itself is a temporary position. Many governorships are the same. I feel Congress should also be term limited, but in some cases, as with the Speaker of the House, elections can cover that. Nancy Pelosi, Paul Ryan, and Gingrich are former speakers. Now, this debate is actually not new. A 1992 piece from Washington Post mentions this title issue. The rule says that there is only one president of the United States at a time, therefore the title does not accompany anyone out of office. Now, many lesser titles do, however, so a former president generally uses his last such title. In this example, and again, remember, this was written in 1992, the proper address is Senator Nixon, as it is Governor Reagan and Governor Carter. So, as noted, those Fox News hosts are not exactly wrong in calling Gingrich Mr. Speaker because that was his last governmental title. But I think that should change, and I prefer the Mr. or Ms. versions. Football and the rare basketball coach also have a title. I always love it when sports reporters call a coach, coach such and such, as if the reporter's ready to suit up and hit the gridiron. But everyday people, the people, do not get titles. As noted, I was a business person for several decades, but no one referred to me as business person Avis, or even today, historian Avis. It would seem weird. Imagine the people that you work with, or the people you work for, or the people who work for you, using titles. Until the 1970s, it was routine for a subordinate to call you Mr. or Ms., rarely back then, but that went the way of bell-bottoms and male short shorts. Thinking a simple, respectful, Mr. Trump, Mr. Gingrich, Ms. Pelosi, and Mr. Obama is just fine. But then, come to think of it, Historian Avis does have a nice ring to it. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Please check out all of our podcasts. And again, coming on September 1st, we have a number of fun announcements for you. So please stay in touch.